I joke sometimes the only time you ever hear about a TPA is when the TPA yeah, screws, screws up. up. Yeah, it's 100%. like nobody's ever been like, oh my God, I love this TPA. TPA They're the amazing. best forever. Yeah. It's that, that, very rarely do I even yeah. hear like a, a positive. And it's like, that's frustrating because they're such an important uh, component of a self-funded plan. But it's like you only hear people complain about service or, you know, they screwed up this thing. And it's just, it's really frustrating. Hey, what's up, guys? Spencer Smith here, host of the Self-Funded with Spencer podcast, sponsored by Pareto Health, ClaimDoc, and PlanSight. Enjoy today's episode. Yeah, I guess you'd obviously want to bring somebody in that doesn't have such entrenched opinions. Exactly. I mean, you wouldn't bring them in to sell what we sell anyways because yeah. it's way different. different. Um, yeah. But I think from somebody like me that has done stop-loss direct, wholesaling stop-loss, mm -hmm closing 3% of the business that comes my yeah. way. On a good year. On a good year. <laughs> yeah. So to give you some context, we sell about 25% of every opportunity that comes to us. When we get yeah. to the point of an indication, which is our initial numbers, it's like 40% close mm -hmm. rate. When we actually quote from the carrier, it's a 60% close rate. So we have qualified that every step of the yes. way. We've qualified the consultant. We've even qualified the employer's uh, mindset. Mm -hmm. So we won't table a quote unless it's a conceptual resounding yes before we ever get Your model is what everyone's scared to do, though. Your model is uh -huh. what TPAs are scared to do. The marketing departments of TPAs, it's what MGUs are scared to do. Um, and well, I don't think it's repeatable for an MGU or a carrier that doesn't have anything that's truly structurally different. Agreed. Um, if there's no, like really competitive advantage over what they yeah. offer. I, I actually believe that a solid MGU actually does have some things that they could they could use and leverage. I just don't think they are doing it because I think to our earlier point, they're just so entrenched in how they've always sold a commodity. Yeah. And it's definitely a mind shift. It is. I mean, yeah, I, I, to your point, I think you could do it. Yeah. Um, you'd just have to be very particular about what is different about your offering, who is the right fit, this challenge with stop loss, though, on an individual case-by-case -case basis, half of them are declines, right? Mm -hmm. The manual rates make it where it's impossible to quote every case yeah. you want to quote and be competitive. With what we do, there's a lot different in the structure mm -hmm. because of the scale. Yeah. And then we've qualified it, either at least the mindset, where we can sell a little bit higher. Yeah. If I'm they bought MGU, it on the concept. Yeah. On the spreadsheet, and I'm only quoting half of the cases that come mm -hmm. uh, my way, and then I'm one of 10. Yeah. Like, am I truly different? Like, yeah, you have to figure out what You can't get you... spreadsheeted. I mean, no. is the issue. You just yeah. can't. No, no carrier can win on a spreadsheet. Who were, like, your preferred partners when you were wholesaling? Like, did you have... Uh, yeah, I would say Accurisk was probably my, one of my number ones. So I wrote on Nationwide and um, Greenwich Paper at the time. Certus, uh, who got acquired by Valence. Yeah. Um, Breck Point, who does a Tennessee-based yeah. captive. Um, uh, I've used Magellan. So Kevin Brown with Magellan is sort of like this rogue uh, Not Magellan RX, right? No. Okay. Yeah. Um, I would say those were my biggest. Okay. Um, I had some stuff with Hig before they turned Skyward. Yeah. Um, but I would say those were my big players. Again, did, did you I'm, have certain like criteria when you yeah, evaluated I mean, them? <laughs> yeah, and I had actually worked with them before. So when I was at the captive, I had some of those relationships. And just it was more relationships that evolved with me. Um, but I was more just like I wasn't somebody who would send to 20 markets or, you know. Yeah. And I would get so frustrated when people would want help and they'd be like, well, I can go to, you know, stealth and they can send it to all these people. I'm like, well, you should. I'm not telling you not to, but that's just not how I roll. Like my carriers know who my other carriers are. Mm -hmm. They know they I share competition. So I'm going to share this quote with this person. I'm going to tell them why I like this quote better. If you want this one, this is a better fit for you. Mm -hmm. um, 
because I know their policies. I know the nuances in their policies. I know the nuances in, you know, how far over the spec you have to be before you can file a claim. I know the nuances of how their spec advance works. I know the nuances of how they calculate, you know, accommodation. If you don't know that, they're all the same. But I was more discerning about brokers and sort of had this three strikes rule. Like if I give you three compelling quotes that I could sell and you can't sell it, you're playing me and I'm done working with you. Man, you have, you literally deploy the exact same rule we have. Mm. Uh, we have, we have a couple rules and I'm probably, I don't know, we're, we're on, right? So I'm just making sure, okay. but we have, we have guidelines around how many opportunities a consultant can come our way and come up uh, empty mm-hmm. before we discontinue a relationship or at least have a conversation about, all right, what's going wrong? What are, yeah. what are we missing? If you truly want to do business with us and we go over three or over four, mm-hmm. something's missing in this equation, right? And if we can have a good conversation about how to correct the course, cool. But yeah. if it's just like, oh, I just don't, I just not feeling it, then we say, okay. Yeah, like, they renewed fully insured. Give the confidence like to move all three, on. All, all three, all three renewed. renewed. You didn't, yeah. you didn't yeah. think about maybe pressuring a little bit harder yeah, you're than not, that. Are you yeah. sure you're not just using me to buy down your rates? Exactly. Is that, are you sure that's not what's happening? Yeah. But that was, even when I first started doing it, people thought it was like ultra aggressive. And it was like, you don't understand. Like you burn your markets by just mm-hmm. sending them quotes that they'll never, I mean, they already, like you said, we already have a low close ratio. So to just send them cases, they don't need practice. No, they don't need you know? practice like, yeah. it's, let's And I wouldn't even send to all the, I knew who was going to be a good fit. Some, you know, carriers are drawn to certain industries or yeah. want to avoid certain industries. or um, And if you could take the time to get to know your partners, then you immediately, when you look at a case, you know who's going to be the right fit for somebody. Yeah, it's, I, I appreciate the approach you had. And we'll get started here in a second. We are started, so we'll probably just keep this. Um, but the approach you take versus just that rate shopping, right? Mm-hmm. There are there are GAs where it's like, this year we're putting a bunch of business with this mm-hmm. uh, carrier, right? And then when they beat that carrier down and they're way below, I actually was going to post about percent of manual today, when they're, you know, their overall percent of manual is very low and those are unprofitable cases. Those carriers course correct at renewal yep. time and they go, well, okay, let's shift all this 25, 50 million over here instead. And, and it just really, becomes a rate play every single year. Yeah. Yeah, And it's one of the things that I, again, I believe is wrong as well. So why don't we introduce you now, (laughs) Madeline? I think we'll keep a lot of that. So I'm here with Madeline Smith, the founder of Matters, which is Mm -hmm. M-A-D-D-R-S. Is that an acronym that stands? Can you tell me what that acronym is? Yeah, it stands for Making a Difference, Directing Real Strategy. I love it. The joke is that it looks like mad doctors. And so when people struggle because they'll add an E or something, I'll say it just just looks like mad doctors, which is funny because I'm health insurance. I don't make doctors mad, but the name. Every once in yeah, a while, it's an easy way to remember how to spell it. It's a mat. Okay, yeah. matters. Awesome. And so you are, I guess, one of the industry's best kept secrets, <laughs> uh, which, I, you know, hopefully, obviously, will shine a little more light on what you do. But I know a lot of your work goes on behind the scenes. You're like this consultant ninja. Uh, so I want to tell your story. Uh, was it Rachel calls you what the Ray Donovan? Of, yeah. yeah. Which I, I haven't even seen, seen Ray Donovan. Donovan. I haven't seen I it either, but I think I, I know I what she means. I prefer like the Olivia Pope reference because okay. I've seen Scandal, but I've never seen Ray Donovan. But yeah, Rachel says... I don't know. I guess he just fixes stuff. Yeah, I think that's what he yeah. does. Yeah. So that's what I don't you murder do. people. You don't I don't yeah. think you don't carry yeah. a gun. No, 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 I don't fix it that way. So all right, but let's tell your story first. I think yeah. um because I want to spend quite a bit of time on what you do. Um and then obviously we'll talk about the book as mm-hmm. well towards the end of this conversation. But let's go back quite a ways and like who are you? Where'd you grow up? What'd you study? All that fun stuff. Yeah. Pareto Health is the manager of the largest employee benefits group captive in the United States. And it's also now the main sponsor of the Self-Funded with Spencer podcast. I chose to partner with Pareto Health for three main reasons. Number one, their dedication to improving the world of health benefits. Number two, their mission to reduce volatility and to make self-funding simple for mid-sized employers. And number three, the strength and scale of their program. 
With over 2,300 member groups and more than $1 billion of stop-loss premium under management, Pareto Health is the most robust solution of its kind in the country, period. Stay tuned for more information because I'm sure I'll be featuring them on an episode of the podcast very soon. Visit Pareto Health at ParetoHealth.com or follow them on LinkedIn to stay up to date on the latest news and developments. Yeah, so I'm from Illinois. Um, I'm a Texas transplant, so I'm here for life now. But from uh, Illinois, a small town in central Illinois, um, really nerdy in school. So uh, the grades, marching band, all the things, newspaper editor, you know, spelling bee, all those things. did you win any spelling bees? Oh, yes, I did. You did? Okay. Yes, thanks for asking. Sixth grade. <laughs> Sixth grade spelling yeah, bee. Yeah. Uh, um, do you remember the word that you uh, I clinched do. with? I do. Bulbous. Okay. B-U-L-B-O-U-S is what I lost regionals. I was like number four in regionals because I won the school spelling bee and I went to regionals and I lost in that word. My parents will never let me forget it. That's funny. And I will, you never <laughs> use that word, but I will never forget how to spell it. Um, so I went on to a liberal arts college. Um I fell in love when I was uh, the school editor. I fell in love with journalism and was really sure that's the path I wanted to go down. So I started my degree in journalism and advertising. Okay. And I was in the classroom like, this stuff is not that tricky. I'm pretty sure I could learn this like on the in the field. I want to do something that I can't learn somewhere else. Okay. And I was raised in the church and I like loved that part of life. And I took a religious studies class and really loved the curriculum and was like, I'm going to do a, like a old school liberal arts degree and I'm going to learn journalism like okay. in real time. So where, I switched. Where was the school? What school? Bradley University. Bradley. I know mm-hmm. Bradley. Yeah. 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 So I switched and um, did a dual religious studies philosophy major. Um, actually started on the path to becoming a pastor, which is funny because really? okay. yeah, I talk like a sailor half the time. <laughs> um, but that was the kind of the path I was going down. And um, uh, as a senior, I met my husband and uh kind of everything sort of changed from there. I was excited. He was ready to kind of follow me wherever we were going to go on this crazy adventure. And and we did. We moved to Boston. And it was out there that I realized I love the business side of nonprofit and church and all of that. Mm-hmm. And so we sort of course corrected and took a different path. I uh, decided to go back to school for business instead of theology. Okay. So I got my MBA. And uh as I'm doing all of this, I'm working in social work. So um, my degree, there's really, you can't get out of school with a religious studies degree and go do anything. Good. So um, I, I was started being a caseworker when I was 19 okay. um, and kind of worked through different nonprofits and um, eventually just was getting really burnt out in the nonprofit space. So I'd worked in everything from child welfare, juvenile court, foster care, uh, disability services, and I just cared so much about what I did. I would come home and, and my husband would be like, you're getting so burnt yeah. out. Like, yeah. I don't see you sustaining this. And so um, at his encouragement, I was like, I'm going to try something else. And so right around that time, there was a healthcare captive who was looking for someone to do marketing and sales. And I thought, well, pretty much nonprofit marketing and event planning and development is sales. Like, that's all yeah. I've done. So let me try it. So, um, well, how did you? So, that's an interesting transition. Totally I want to ask the question, though. So, like, how did you discover this healthcare captive had this it open ju- position? They had a job posting, okay. and I was yeah. actually, it was literally a job posting. Now, what's funny is at the time, I knew nothing about insurance. So, I was, I don't know, I was in my 20s, and I, I, pro- I don't even think I knew really understood what a deductible was and how it all worked. I'd never been a high utilizer of healthcare. Yeah. But I'm like, oh, you know, I'm young. I can do anything. Invincibility. I, I could do this. Um, so I went into an interview. I really 
like connected with the people. I felt like this could be a good fit for me. Um, I figured I could learn all the insurance stuff. Of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can't be that hard, yeah. right? So um, I start and then I realize how much I don't know. And they were really kind of in startup phase. I mean, as an entity, they weren't a startup, but in the place of their evolution, it was kind of a startup. So there was a lot that had to get done operationally. And so as I'm there, I'm realizing like we have more to do on operations than we do marketing and sales. And at the time, the uh, CEO was like, well, we'll just put you in charge of operations. Then. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Did you show an interest in it? I mean, like, I think I showed okay. like, I love what this can become. We need to do some things. And so I think, um, I think they probably just knew I was that person who'll just figure it out. Um, well, I have to say for any young people listening, initiative is what you showed right <laughs> yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Show sure. initiative, right? For you sure. never know what will happen. And speak up. I mean, yeah. I think that was it. Like I was excited about where it could go and I could see kind of the future. And that had been sort of what I'd done all through nonprofits was, Hey, we're here, but we should be here. Can I get us there? And in the nonprofit world, you don't have the money, the resources, mm. the ability to kind of course correct ever, but here we did. And so, um, so I literally shifted like from a Friday to Monday from sales, which I wasn't doing because I didn't really even understand it, to like figure out how to make this work better. Okay. So I knew nothing. Keep in mind, like this is, and we were the, kind of a, one of the most progressive at the time. So we were doing a lot of reference-based pricing, custom networks, direct contracting. Really? Okay. Um, well, you got exposed to like all yes. of it, like simultaneously. This was like eight years ago, before wow. this was like really even talked about. And I had a lot of leeway to ask questions and learn. And so I just started finding the people that I trusted who felt like they were kind of SMEs and ask questions. And I met some incredible people who were willing to teach me. And I didn't have any real motive other than I want to learn so I can make it work better. So primarily underwriters, actuaries, um, stop loss marketing folks, TPAs, but more on the ops side, not the sales team. Okay. And I learned the mechanics of kind of how it all comes together. Um, so I did eventually move back into production and oversaw the team that did operations. But by that time, it felt so easy because I knew how it all worked. Well, you, you kind of helped kind of establish yes. the framework too, yes. right? So what was it though? Did you find yourself just natu a natural ability towards operations? Because that's, yes. that's a niche thing that not everybody, yes. I'm not a great operations person. I'll be yes. the first to tell you that. So what was it about that that just sort of clicked with you? Plan Sight is a complete game changer in the world of insurance broker. As a broker, you know how time-consuming and error-prone the traditional RFP process can be. But what if I told you there's a better way? PlanSight is the only end-to-end -end RFP solution on the market made specifically for benefits agencies. It's like having a superpower that gets you an average of eight to 10 hours back per employer renewal per year. And the best part? PlanSight supports all carriers, all funding types, and all group sizes for over 20 different benefits. If you're ready to make your RFP process faster, more efficient, and more profitable, it's time to call PlanSight. Visit PlanSight.com now to book a free demo and discover the future of insurance renewals. It's like, I real, it's how my brain works. Um, I had never thought about operations as anything I would do. It's not something, especially insurance operations. It's mm. not like you grow up and think that's gonna yeah. be your life path. Um, I just really liked it. And I would be in a room 
at a, at the time, this is way pre-COVID, so there were real rooms of people, human people <laughs> sitting and talking together. Um, and, you know, we'd be like whiteboarding things and there'd be 10 people who just couldn't figure it out. And I was quiet, but I was like, there's such an obvious answer here. And it took me a long time to have the courage to say, I think there's, I think this is how we do it. Mm-hmm. But once I started doing that, like it started fixing things. Yeah. And so that's when I realized like my love isn't necessarily selling or marketing, although it is fun. Um, you kind of get that high when you can share and win, Yeah, of course. but my real love was fixing things. And so the way you fix things is to learn how they work and then learn how to make them work better. And that's where I just, I was sort of obsessed with the ops side of it. So I was there for, um, quite a few years, built it up, um, and really supported them. And then the direction that their leadership and, and I were going was kind of different where I was at in my life and we had a growing family. Were you still in Boston at this time? No, we were in Illinois. You're we moved Illinois. back to okay. Illinois. Yeah, yeah, they were in Illinois. Um, and by that time we had relocated to Texas. I We were just kind of going different directions. So, um, How'd you pick Texas, by the way? My in-laws lived here, okay. and so we'd visited, and I was in love with the weather. <laughs> and, you didn't um, visit in August. Though, did yeah, you know? I mean, but when you're leaving Illinois, even August okay, is worth it. Yeah. Um, we were just tired of shoveling snow. Um, so, yeah, so we moved here. We love Texas, but I knew we were going different directions, like, you know, company-wise. So I left, and I was kind of like, where do I go? Like, what am I? Like, what position would I even apply for, sure, really, you sure. know? Um And I had some nudgings from people like, you should just consult. And I'm like, that sounds nice. But like, who am I? You know, like (laughs) to just go take this crazy leap. Um, And even though, you know, my my dad was an entrepreneur, I just didn't feel like I had the courage to do it. But after nudging and thinking and kind of my husband being the person behind me, like, you can do this, you know, and, and colleagues and mentors, I eventually did it. So after I left, I decided just to start with a few contracts and just see if I was at actually any good at consulting independently. Sure. And so I, I got to ask those, like yeah. that first client, that first customer, how did that come about? Was it a relationship or referral? Were you yeah, selling? It was, like, it was a relationship. Um, it was somebody that I had got introduced to from someone else um, in the business and they weren't, you know, a client or even a colleague at the time of the company where I was. It was just somebody that kind of had become a mentor. They were people I could call and ask questions yeah. of. And they saw what I was doing, what I had been good at, and they needed something. So at the time they were building, um, I had two initial clients at the same time, but one was building a TPA and one was building um, kind of like a TPA infrastructure tech and things like that. Okay. And they just, they needed somebody who could kind of come in and find out what they still needed to do. Like, how do we wrap this up? How do we move forward? How do we distribute it? Help us understand who all the players are going to be. And that just sounded fun because I knew who the players were and, and to be able to have that level of engagement. So that's how it's. Well, I say, I've heard before people like if you're ever thinking about starting a business is just find out what people are willing to pay you yes. to do and go do that. Right. And yes. so you found very clearly people are willing to pay you to yeah. consult. And so when you structured these, was it like, oh, well, I'll consult for you for three months or six months or yep. was it just so indefinite? Was, How did that work? Yeah, that was the part that I will say. And that's really evolved kind of what my view for the future is even outside of insurance is that there was no one to help me figure it out. Yeah. Um, there was, there's no manual. It's like parenting. Like there's no handbook. There's no, like, here's how you do it. So it was a lot of trial and error. Um, I definitely undercharged looking back, but I didn't know any better. Right. (laughs) I didn't know how to do contracts. I mean, I had a lawyer draft some up for me, but they weren't expert on the industry. So there were things that were missing that, you know, um, but yeah, we started out just like, let's just do this in the back of my mind. I remember telling my husband, I'm going to do this for like six months and then I'll probably just have to get a job, you know, cause I just, it's probably not going to work. Yeah. And so I did a six month contract and 
And then they renewed. And then by that time, I had other people asking for contracts. And I was like, oh, maybe. Well, was word traveling yes. the work you were yes. doing? I okay. definitely wasn't marketing. Even though that had been my past life, yeah. I had no time. I was so busy trying to like, that's the other thing as an entrepreneur, especially in the very beginning, like you're trying to prove yourself. So sure. the, the level of hustle is, is so different. Even then, it's different even than when you're on a job. And I was always that person who wanted to prove myself even in a position. But when it's, you know, kind of the business is riding on it, it's a different level of hustle. So I didn't have time to market. It was all just so-and-so saying, oh, you have a problem. She could probably help you. Um, and sometimes it was very specific. Sometimes it was like, we, we don't know how long this thing will take, but we have this one specific problem. If you could just come help us. Yeah. Um, or we actually have a team that needs to learn this thing. If you could come in just for these two days and teach our team this and let us ask you questions. Um, so contracts range from like hourly, monthly, long-term, um, surely though you've had some stuff. of these companies try to hire you full time though, right? Oh, like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'd yeah. imagine. Right. It's like, why would we want her to spend her time anywhere else? Like, like let's there's just, two that it's really, it's kind of become a joke because yeah. they're like convinced that if they could just, they just keep sliding yes, that piece of paper yes. over, like you can sign this whenever you yes, want. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty funny, but it's not, once I got the bug, uh, of like, I can do this, then it was like, I don't know how I could just work for one person. Yeah. That's kind of what I enjoyed most about consulting is I have multiple projects going on at the same time and it's all stuff I've handpicked that is a good, that That's I can awesome. actually help them. I'm a good fit for it. Um, I've had clients I haven't taken on and it's not been adversarial. It's just like, I don't know that I can help you in the way that you've need. I've even had clients who I've helped them for a while and then ended the contract early because they're not where I thought they were. And my they're not ready or I can't help where they're at right yeah. now. Right there. These are the things you need to do before. I don't want to take your money and I can't help you yet. Yeah. Right. So yeah. go here. And then if this gets like this, then maybe, and it's, um, it's been a blast really. I mean that the side of consulting where I'm really fixing problems has been awesome that I can, I can move levers inside behind the scenes of a TPA or getting a TPA and a PBM to talk to each other or getting a carrier and a TPA to like solve a problem when their block is falling apart. No one knows I exist except for those people, but I can affect hundreds of thousands of lives and fix them. Yeah. Right. I can make the people walk away and like retain a relationship. So well, do you, when you uh, work with these companies, right. Or is it intentionally like almost secretive, right. That you're involved or. I, I don't know that I would say secretive. I just, kind of yeah. Thing. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. not like, it's not like a secret. Um, if I'm ever touching something like we're, we're following all the rules, you yeah, know, like BAAs and all the things I'm hired as a contractor. Sometimes in some case I'm a subcontractor. Some clients have had to, you know, tell their clients they have a subcontractor who's working on things. It's not like top secret like that, but I'll use an example with a TPA. If a TPA is having an issue with a carrier and it wasn't, they didn't source the business. A broker came to them. It's the broker's business and the broker placed the stop loss. Mm -hmm. But the TPA and the carrier are fundamentally disagreeing about something. Let's say a big ag claim or a spec hit or something. Um, they will include the broker, but a lot of times the broker can't fix it. All they can really do is like call the carrier and yell at them, call the TPA, yell at them and just say, fix it or I'm going to lose my client. Yeah. That's, they can get big and scary, but they can't fundamentally yeah. get behind the scenes. Understood. And so I can sit inside of the TPA system, be on the phone with the carrier, like look at all the things and be like, okay, here's the compromise I think you guys need to make. So you're so almost it, like a mediator in that yes. regard. Yeah. And the broker may not know I was there. Um, now, there are cases where like they'll only bring me in when they know the broker would be fine with it. 
But that's an example where it's not like I'm, it's not like a secret. It's just like they don't, I'm here to fix it. I'm just here to make it work for the client ultimately. And they know that the broker is not likely in a role to be able to do that. Um, I also, I just had a conversation this last week. Um, because I've consulted four MGUs and captives and carriers and then four TPAs and PBMs, I've seen like, the systems on all sides. So like when a, when a TPA is arguing with me about what's happening on a quote or a renewal, I can actually tell them in a different way, here's what is happening mm -hmm. because I've seen it. And when a carrier is saying, I don't understand why the TPA's report looks like this, I've seen the TPA's claim system and I can say, I can tell you why that report looks like this. So I kind of have been able to be behind the curtain on all the sides yeah. so I can say, this is the piece you're not looking at. Like. And that's been the most fun is bringing people together is saying you're you're both partly wrong and partly right. But there is somewhere in the middle where ultimately everybody can. Well, it's sometimes good to have like an independent evaluation. Yeah, that's the best part. Yeah. So it's like. I'm not selling anything. Yeah, you're not selling yeah. anything. Your job is to solve the problem in and of itself, right? To Not everybody's going to get 100% of what exactly. they want. But if we come to a resolution that everybody at least can agree on was a good thing ultimately yeah. and we all kept the client, they're now satisfied that the problem is fixed and we get to move on. Exactly. That's a, that's a proper outcome. But it's when people are dead set on being right or yes. proving somebody else screwed up. I mean, yes. that's what I joke sometimes. The only time you ever hear about a TPA is when the TPA yeah, screws, screws up. up. Yeah, it's 100%. like nobody's ever been like, oh my God, I love this my TPA. TPA the best for yeah. it's ne that. Very rarely do I even yeah. hear like a, a positive. And it's like, that's frustrating because they're such an important uh, component of a self-funded plan. But it's like, you only hear people complain about service or, you know, they screwed up this thing yeah. and it's just, it's really frustrating. It's the least glamorous. So, uh, one of my recent projects was to help build a TPA, which is funny because people who've worked with me know that I said the one thing I would never do, <laughs> I was told like, you should start a TPA. Like, Oh, never. I would never do that. Like why? Cause it's like the least glamorous, least overhead, highest, like, it's just awful. Like, I mean, highest overhead, least margin business. Yeah. And I think part of the reason now having helped build one is that people don't understand what a TPA is or is supposed mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. And until you've worked at one or worked in one or worked behind the scenes with one, you just really don't see the struggle of what it is. And I think having been in production, I can say I dumped a lot on a TPA sort of creating this relationship where I expected them to do all the things instead of treating them like an administrator. Okay. And if you look at what they're paid, versus what we make is in production um, mm -hmm. versus for what they do. You know, we looked at them to create the SPDs and to handle customer service and to process the claims. Most producers aren't reading the 100-page SPD. They just take the TPA's SPD. Yep. And then when something's wrong, they go back to the TPA and say, like, oh, my gosh, you totally hurt my client here. Um, but they just did a find and replace on their template and you know, you know, yeah, totally. they're not consultants, like yeah. they're just administrators. So, um, and I think that it's because the evolution of the business, I think a lot of particularly producers who went from fully insured to self-funded thought that the TPA was a replacement of the carrier. And so, whereas you had the carrier sort of this one entity who did yeah. all the things, they looked at the TPA as the one entity who does all the things. They'll place the stop loss, they'll find the PBM, they'll do my reports, they'll get the SPD and really it's plug and play. That's really not what it mm -hmm. is, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're not paid enough to do that. Yeah. And they're most of them, if you get behind the scenes, are not designed even to do that. They're designed to be administrators. They're designed to be the, you know, the number that members call. They're designed to adjudicate claims in the way that they're instructed to. Yes. They're not creators. Yeah. Well, so, all right, so let's unpack that a little bit further since you have such an intimate knowledge of how TPAs work and some of the issues, but also maybe some of the things that are unnecessarily lumped yeah. in their lap. 
what would you change about like if you were to build a TPA from scratch or, you know, like there's got to be a couple ideas that you have in your head. And if you don't want to yeah. say that, no, of course, yeah. no, of course. Um, well, I think some people are changing them. I do think there are some TPAs that are, are being more, um, the initiator, the creator, they're, they're more than just administrators. I don't necessarily think the structure has to change. I think we just need to communicate better. Okay. I think TPAs, brokers, production, um, and stop loss carriers need to have conversation where they explain their seat at the table a little better instead of assuming that everyone knows. Okay. So for example, you know, an administrator, when they take on a new case and we're rushing, I know none of, neither of us have ever done this, but you have a case that's like <laughs> renewing in, 30 days, the renewal's not done, they, they, you can't close the renewal, now you're scrambling and you close yeah. the case in under 30 days. We go to the TPA and we say, you have to implement this, do us a favor. Like, I have to have, the, we need cards in hands. So what does the TPA do? Instead of saying, we can't do this, they go to help us out, right? And they'll say, sure, we'll do this. And we'll try to get the cards, there's a chance they won't have them. But what they're not doing is like a deep dive into the benefits. They're not, they're looking at the basics. They're not looking at the nuances of the formulary and the nuances of integrating mm -hmm. with that PBM. They're not looking at maybe the VIPs who have special circumstances that the group's already set up with their previous carrier. So TPAs don't communicate up front and say, hey, like we need to know these things or we can't deliver. So two months into the plan year, so-and-so goes to pick up their mm -hmm. script and it's always the CEO. Because well, they just said yes. yes. Yeah. Like, yes, yes, we'll do it. Of course. Yeah, like, of course. we'll be agreeable. And yeah. I think that, so I think it's the lack of communication. It's being too agreeable. And then it's not saying, hey, look, here's how things work. Like our system takes three weeks for this to be good and loaded. Okay. And then it could take us two weeks to test eligibility files. And then there's a chance that they'll go to the pharmacy and they won't be in the system yet because we waited too long. Um, so it's just, I don't know that there's fundamental change that has to happen. If we're not going to fundamentally change the way TPAs work, then we all just need to have more real conversation. Well, then how much shift to tech is helping, right? Because I know a lot of TPAs are a lot more tech forward than they used yeah. to be. There are legacy systems out there that For are 20 sure. years old, 20 plus For years sure. old. So like, is that going to be part of the problem or is that just putting a sort of shiny band? Yeah, I think it's it? helping. I think though, if you think about the ecosystem of healthcare, it's not going to matter how tech forward a TPA is if providers don't get there, right? So a lot of people don't understand even... Um, like how claims are electronically submitted to TPA. So just because you're tech forward doesn't mean your particular, the, these providers can submit it to your vendor that talks to that TPA. There's just right. so many nuances to that. And none of us have really taken the time to understand how that works. I think it helps. I think tech definitely helps, but it doesn't take away the fact that the fundamental problem is not understanding everyone's role. Mm -hmm. and not understanding, and maybe it's different. Like there are some TPAs, like I've said, who, who can create, right? Who can say, hey, we have different programs. Which one is a good fit for your client? Um, but it, those conversations aren't what's happening. I don't see a lot of that. I, I see a lot more conversations from the production side. Like this is what I need. This is the client I have. And the TPA is saying like, we need business, right? Because it's kind of a dying, struggling mm -hmm. uh, industry. Um, so send us business. And so we've sacrifice the real conversations about what each of us needs to do to yeah. make this work for the client. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. And I've seen the evolution. I know you got involved and maybe we'll touch on a little bit of like kind of the wholesaling side mm -hmm. or the GA side of yeah. stop loss, whatever yeah. term you want to use. But it's like, it used to be something that was predominantly done 
through the TPA. Yes. They controlled the shopping of stop loss to independent markets or yep. separate stop loss markets. Now I see that happening less and less and less. Mm. GAs have obviously proliferated. Um, you know, there's other sources, tech sources now that you can get quotes from. So how do you how do you think that's changing? Maybe what are best practices in your opinion about stop stop loss quoting? Yeah, I mean, I think if a TPA has the robust team for stop loss marketing that they should, it makes sense for them to do it because they know they're the ones who are going to be filing the claims. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who are going to be housing the policies. Um, it makes sense. What I've seen too much of is you don't, you have TPAs who are phenomenal at claims processing and customer service and reporting who don't have a really robust stop loss marketing department. Um, and so in some cases it doesn't make sense for them to do that. I think shifting the, relationship away from TPAs and carriers has put a little bit of a gap between TPAs. So TPAs have kind of become a commodity mm. when the GAs and the brokers are shopping the stop loss and they're just picking a TPA off a list. Yep. Um, we're losing, again, the nuances of what would make one TPA partner a better fit for a particular right. client or right. carrier. Um, carriers have preferences. They have, you know, they have TPAs whose reporting they like better, whose um, claim filing they like better, mm -hmm. whose teams they like better, you know, I hate to say it. So, but we lose some of that when it's like, I'm placing it with this carrier, here's the approved TPAs, here's what I'm gonna pick. Or when we go to a TPA and say, here's our list of demands, you know, here's a PBM we need you to work with and here's what we need the admin fee to be and can you execute? Instead of saying like, what are you good at? Yeah. Like, are you great at value-based reference-based pricing? Are you great at direct contracts? Are you great at PPOs? Are you great at kind of navigating care? Are you great at 24-7 service? Do you have boots on the like, What is it that this group right. needs? And who's the TPA that's going to be the right fit for that? Well, and I'm a, I'm a component of obviously picking uh, solution providers that are sort of best in class on their own. However, mm -hmm. you do have to make that consideration, like you said, is like yeah. who actually also works well together, mm -hmm. you know, the sum, whose sum is greater than the individual parts, yeah. right? If you just pick and choose off a shelf and slam those together, it doesn't mean it's going to work, even if in, in their category, they technically might be yeah. considered the I have the best. two, I won't name them, but I have a, a carrier and a TPA who are both best in class on their own, but they will not work together because yeah. of history. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the other piece to remember is like, we, we all have memories. Um, and so there are things where if a carrier has taken a huge loss or a TPA has taken a huge loss because of a carrier, there's damaged relationships. It, just because they're both best in class, I literally can't quote them together. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's the other piece of this is the relationship side of it. And I think that the TPAs who are showing the most success right now are the ones who are realizing they have to evolve but are doing so through an open-mindedness that maybe their industry is shifting and finding out instead of just saying, you know what, the industry is shifting, I need to have new tech or the industry is shifting, I need to sell new stop loss. That's like the lowest rate on the sheet. They're saying, what is it that my clients need? What is it that I'm not winning business? Why am I not winning business? Yeah. And then saying, okay, I need to fix that need in order to grow in the space. Same with carriers too. Well, I was going to ask you then. So, like, obviously, we, we want to get to our book here, your book here in a minute, or the, the, the anthology, book. the book. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, but uh, I do want to kind of spend a couple more minutes on matters because, yeah. uh, like, from a project perspective, do you have any sort of favorite stories? Or you don't have to name names, but like, where you yeah. really knew you made a monumental impact for the organization that you know you hold near and dear to your heart. Um, I've saved a lot of people a lot of money, yeah. so I will <laughs> tell you that part does feel really great, and it feels like. Um, even though I'm not in nonprofit anymore, I think I've preserved that side of 
me and what I need this industry mm -hmm. to be for me. This industry, as you know, can get so ugly. And so it feels really rewarding to know that I've really helped a lot of people, um, even people who don't know or people who know and are just ungrateful because they don't want to admit that someone else could help them. And that's okay. Um, I've had a new project this year. So I did um, an RFP for um, a hospital system. Okay. Totally independent. Usually the broker does that. And um, it was a journey. Uh, okay. it was, it was hard because everyone was like, why is there an independent consultant doing the RFP? And it took people a while to get used to the fact that like, there's no rules. Like the, the client can do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it was a client that I've known for a long time and I know them well. So I, and I know TPA as well. So it was a, they were doing a TPA RFP and it was so fun to be totally independent. Like I had no, the only skin in the game I had was that I needed to find that client, the perfect partner. Yeah. Right. But yeah. I had no ulterior motive. It was like a fee based project. Like this is what I'm getting no matter what my ultimate goal is for the client to be happy. And a lot of people didn't necessarily love it around the outsides because it was so different than yeah. anything that usually happened. But I, I came away thinking like, this is how RFP should work. There mm. shouldn't be this like ulterior motive where the broker really wants it to go here because there's other reasons, you know? Um, so that was really fun. I also just love the client. So that, that made it a fun, um, project. Um, I, I will say that I, I still have a love for stop loss. I told you I've done yeah. a lot of GA wholesale. I like the science art, like we've talked about before of stop loss. Um, I don't think it's a commodity, even, yeah. even outside of where you have a, a real competitive, you know, captive. And that's kind of where I cut my teeth was in captives, but, um, I love that side of it. So the projects where I get to deal with a really large claim and everyone is like, feels like they're at a loss or deal with where a block is starting to go down and mm -hmm. the carrier doesn't understand why, or a TPA is struggling, um, to find the right carrier partner. I like those where I can, the fix has a huge impact, like ripple effects kind of in the space. When, as you sort of evolve this business and obviously we'll talk about what the future holds for yeah. you, you know, how do you pick and choose projects these days? Right. Because you have limited capacity, you have a lot yeah. going on in your life, which everybody does. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's only so much time to go around. And now it seems like you obviously have the ability to be more selective in nature mm -hmm. of what you choose. So what are you looking for as projects come across your desk? Um, I will tell you, and a lot of people will probably disagree with this philosophy, but it's really just the people. Okay. So I've done enough where I've had projects where it paid incredibly well. Um, but the people or the mission or the character just didn't jive with me. And now to me, I'm at a place where the most important thing for me is if I'm going to pour my heart and soul into a project, I need to know that it's the right fit as a client, as a team, whoever it is I'm working with. Um, cause kind of like back in my nonprofit days, like I throw myself into it. I eat, sleep and breathe it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if I'm going to do that, it has to be for people that whose character I feel like is aligned with mine, whose mission is aligned with mine. Um, so, you know, five years ago that, that answer might've been different, but now, that's what I'm deciding is, is the who on the other side of the project. Um, you know, pretty much what I do stays in the realm of stop loss operations, TPA, you know, that kind of stuff, but which projects I'm going to take on is the people behind it. Cool. And now let's kind of shift gears a little bit and yeah. shift in kind of the future. Well, I guess I think the future is sort of based on uh, the recent anthology. So a whole lot of money in this mofo. Uh, we have <laughs> yeah. to talk about the title, I think, yeah. first, obviously. And then we'll talk about what the book was and ultimately yeah. the mission behind it. So tell me, you know, what was the original idea inception for this book? Um, yeah. So originally it wasn't even going to be an anthology. So originally it was just I was fed up with 
what I'll call like pseudo disruption. Yeah. Where we like talk about being disruptors, but we're actually doing the same thing yeah. just with a different, you know, color. And um, I was just frustrated and I was okay. tired of what it was doing to the industry. So I was like, you know, I just want to tell, I just want to write a book where I just tell the whole truth. I have nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm just going to tell the whole truth. Nobody might buy it, but it's okay. I'm just going to get it out there. Show my kids, like, this is what you do when you believe in something. And then as I started writing, I realized that I really wouldn't be here if it weren't for, you know, a dozen people who were not, like totally unafraid to do the right thing, even if it, that compromise cost them yeah. money or yeah. a client or whatever. And they were willing to teach me with nothing, with no asks in return. Mm -hmm. So many people who were willing to teach and share knowledge with me. And so coincidentally, most of those people would not take the time or even put themselves in a position to elevate themselves or be seen sure. or project themselves as subject matter experts. And I, once a, the, the publisher kind of took on the project, I thought I have a platform here where I can go tap people that I know have something to share and say, like, let's use this platform to do it. So that's why I became an anthology. Um, I did a call for submissions just to kind of see if people were interested mm -hmm. at that point, if people wanted to write. And that was quite an interesting project in and of itself. Yeah. Um, but what was really neat is that there was a hunger in the contributor space. So many people had a truth to tell mm -hmm. and loved that they had an opportunity to tell it. And they wanted to tell it in a raw way. Yeah. So part of the whole point of the book, the title, the cover, all of it is that it would be sort of untempered, that we wouldn't just mute and be, you know, a business textbook. Yeah. Wouldn't be really buttoned up. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah like yeah. I didn't want to do, that's too much of that yeah. at this point. That's part of the problem, yeah. I think. So, um, so you that's felt that evolved. like that title sort of suggested that you had the opportunity to kind of tell yes. the truth a little bit more. So I was freely. on a yeah. run and I like my husband's probably laughing at me, but I like, my life is sort of like this playlist of like explicit music slash gospel all over the <laughs> yeah, place right funny. and so i'm listening to a song and i'm like i t it's really there's so many songs that i relate to our industry and i was listening to the song and i was like that is exactly what's wrong with this business is that there's so much money hidden in places mm -hmm. that are driving decisions they're driving good and bad decisions and so i texted the publisher and i was like and you're gonna think i'm crazy but this is what i'm titling it and you know, people, a lot of people don't understand the process, but particularly when you're doing hybrid publishing, you have a lot of control, but you also are, the publisher can say yes or no, ah, right? Okay. And yeah. so um, she loved it and was like, this is you know, exactly what we need. So, but I will tell you a funny story about the title. So my grandpa's uh, almost 90. Okay. And um, obviously my mom's all proud of the book and she was telling my grandpa about it. And <laughs> I guess he didn't know what a mofo was. Yeah. So you have my mother trying to explain to my 90 year old grandpa uh, what a mofo is and my mother doesn't cuss. So it was, I really wish I could have heard Did the grandpa conversation. grandpa end up getting it yes, though? Yes, okay. he got it. Uh, I don't know. his reaction? Though? I don't know, I wasn't there for <laughs> oh, it, but I'm sure, he has a good sense of humor yeah. and he knows who his granddaughter is. So That's funny. I'm sure he's fine, but it was pretty funny. There's a lot of people who didn't totally get it at first. And both in the industry and in the publishing world, we got a lot of slack. So we actually have been working with a publicist and talking to a publicist about doing a big campaign for the book. And they came back and they were like, you know, I just don't feel like this book is appropriate for the industry. The The title and the cover are just a little too progressive. I don't think it's your Sunday best, hmm. which to me was like a challenge of yeah. like, oh, you don't think it's our Sunday best. Okay. okay. Got it. Yeah. Let me show you yeah. how I don't need you to be my publicist. Yeah. But um, we definitely got heat. Um, but that was the whole point. 
that really it wasn't an accident that was the intention well do you think so ultimately like now that you look back and it's been completed obviously you're dealing with individual contributors yeah. and if anybody's listening i, I contributed a chapter yes. right so i might as well just mention die. that self-funder die which <laughs> i may end up trying to like trademark or yes, something you uh, should. but um you know it was such a joy to get an opportunity to just I, I made a post last week about constraints i like when i have a lane to go down and like mm-hmm. you let creativity get channeled and focused into something mm-hmm. when it's just like completely free Blank you're like page, yeah. what do i do um but anyways, when you look back at kind of some of the challenges, obviously getting revisions, getting edits, you know, asking people to do more, yeah. like ultimately the project of itself, did you, were you glad you did the anthology model and were you happy with the outcome? I am glad that I did the anthology model because it was an opportunity to elevate the people. Mm. It's not an accident that book two is not an anthology. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it wasn't terrible. I think what was so I mean, it it makes sense if you think about it, that my goal was to bring really powerful people together. And when you do that, it's very difficult to help make it jive. So they're not your chapter, but there were some chapters where there was some tension around like what we are allowed to put in a book. And a lot of people don't understand kind of all the things. Um, It goes through legal read. It goes through so many levels of proofread. It goes through editing. And then I have a publisher approval. And then Ultimately, it's on my name, yeah. so like I have have to approve. So that journey was interesting. I'm pretty close to all the contributors. I know everyone. Mm-hmm. It's not like anybody was strangers. That process was trying and difficult. Um, what it did do, though, was like remind me how much I love writing. Um, and so it, it it was a fun project, but it turned into like I could really do that for the rest of my life. Yeah. I really loved it. Um, and so. Book two is is not an anthology. Okay, so book two is I'm not an anthology. I'm stealing back the writing you, ability. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't blame it. you. Right? Sometimes you 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 kind of bring people in. It's a collaborative effort, but ultimately you look at it and go. Well, I want to write what I want yeah. to say um, and have, you know, kind of sole discretion yeah. over that. And I, I totally get that, right? Then the onus is on you to write it. Yes. Um, but I think ultimately it becomes more of an extension of you than that yeah. anthology model. So what is book two ultimately going to be focused on, if you can share that? Yeah, so... Um so book one was for employers, and yeah. that's the other reason I like that it was an anthology was because um, it brought together, you know, 13 different ideas that an employer can hear from different perspectives, mm-hmm. you know, some production carriers, everybody. Um, book two is a patient guide. So yeah. um, I genuinely wrote book two for the people like my mother, my mother-in-law, my sister who uh, asked me questions about how to navigate healthcare. Um, who want to know what a DPC is, who want to understand how to find where to get their lab done or their test done. You know, even though I am on the op side of the actual service providers, I touch member situations all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I really feel like we all want to educate members and, and sitting behind the employers, employers want to educate members, but it's so hard to do that. And so um, it literally is a guidebook on so many different things. So how to make the most out of your the health insurance that you do have. If you're uninsured, um, how to navigate and how to find you know high quality cash options. Sure. If direct primary care makes sense for you, concierge medicine, what's the difference between those two things? What's the difference between an MD and a DO? How do you find the right provider just because someone's in network? Yeah. How does the pharmacy actually work? Most people have no idea how, you know. Well, it sounds like you're actually, so we have this notion of consumerism, right? And yes. we want people to be con- good consumers, but you don't 
know, arm them with information exactly. to make good choices, right? So you want to ultimately help them interface with the, yes. the system itself, right? So that, I mean, that's probably could be an encyclopedia yeah, book. Yeah, it, it evolved. So I mean, even yeah. once I started and then something happened when I first started writing too about, there was a, a truth that I s sort of couldn't avoid um, as I just, once you start writing, it just kind of flows. And, and that was really the disparities in healthcare. So the disparities in our healthcare in this country around, you know, wealth, race, mm -hmm. gender, um, and the access to care. And so the, the first part of the book is really, um, and it's still in editing, so that part might move. Okay. At some point in the book, uh, there are several chapters around kind of a call to action for all of us to understand that if we don't fall in a particular um, audience or group, mm -hmm. still understanding the situation that someone might be facing yeah. um, when it comes to trying to access health care. Because I think that it, it speaks to what each of our experiences are very different. My experience is different than my mother's mm -hmm. or my husband's or a friend's. Um, but understanding that we each can actually do something and encouraging people, if we know more, we can help them. And so there is, it's not, that part isn't necessarily as much of a guide as sort of what I've learned um, about the industry and what I think we can do to kind of help each other. Cool. And did you have a, I think ultimately you said you've, you've got kind of a schedule that you're going to follow for releases yeah. and things like that. But so if it's in editing right now, like how much more massaging and revisions happen before it's ultimately ready to be published? ClaimDoc is a medical claim auditing and member advocacy company. We provide fiduciary services to employer sponsored benefit plans allowing them to create an environment where we ensure that the benefit plans are being charged in a fair and reasonable basis. My business is basically people and it become a real simple transition. We thought it was gonna be far more complex. I've saved, we'll say hundreds of thousands of dollars. I could not say enough about ClaimDoc. Yeah, a lot more than people think. Okay. Um, you spend a lot of time with your publishing team, um, and then you'll go through legal and on all those things. We the the manuscript is done, uh, labor of love, but it's done for book two. But we decided to uh, publish and release in March of next year. So we okay. released in March of this year. We're going to release book two in March of next year. We, the Mofo marches. I Mofo think we're, marches. Yeah, I, I love we're that. Gonna, yeah, when you told uh, me that, yeah. Me, yeah, Mofo marches. I'm I think like, we're going to keep with that. It's just it's a great time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we'll be on that track. Ideally it'll be done before that. There's so much that happens, you yeah. know, pre-launch, um, and you need to leave time for other things. That Do you have the theme of up. book th three already established though? Cause book yeah. two is patient. Focus. Yep. What's so three? I kind of had the plan from the very beginning. Okay. Um, so book three is kind of the same line, but for all the service, it's for my clients. Okay. So it's split into, um, service and production, but it's literally a guide for us for people in the industry, professionals, whether it be brokers, agents, agencies, carriers, MGUs, captives, PBMs, all the things. All the things. Yeah. Um, but it's a guidebook. If you think about so many of us got into this business and nobody could really, I mean, there's training, but it's well, not. I mean, why do you think I do the podcast? Yeah, and those whiteboard not videos? Nobody trained me. I learn as I go, exactly. just like most of us Exactly. Yeah. And so I wanted it to kind of just be all the things I've learned. And like, I don't need to hoard that information. Right. I can I can share it with people so that hopefully when people get newly licensed or come into the space mm -hmm. and have a fire about themselves. I've met so many either young people or people who have that come into this career as their second career who have a fire to do something different. But it's so hard to figure out how to do the different. Yeah. And so I wanted book three to be that. So everything that my consulting and coaching have been, but in book form. So awesome. that'll be book three of the Well, So do you think being an author on a recurring basis is going to be part of your career or once? Oh, no book question. Three? Okay. So I 
Um, and I don't know if it'll always stay nonfiction, but these, I, I told the publisher after the first book, like I got the bug and I like, want to oh, keep you got writing. The bug, okay. Yeah. She was like, can we just finish the books that we've already like, you know, contracted like, for? Book four, it's going to be this and book five. Like, I, I was like, I think this series will be all I'm going to do in this space, but I do. Um, I definitely, the writing. Well then as you sort of shift into this as being a regular part of your career, you know, what does that ultimately you think would mean for matters? And yeah. what do you, I guess, if I ask, what, what do you want to be, uh, yeah. you know, with your, you know, with your life when you grow um, up? Yeah. So I, I think matters has definitely shifted away from the wholesale stop loss side and shifted almost exclusively to consulting and coaching. Okay. Um, I was doing so much coaching and a lot of my coaching would go, instead of being in a team consulting capacity, a lot of clients would say, Hey, could you work with this one individual? And so it mm. turned into a lot of individual coaching so much so that I felt like I needed some like firepower when got a life coach license and okay. really wanted to learn, like, am I on the right track? Am I qualified to really coach individuals? And I love that. Um, and so I've done a lot of individual coaching. So I think matters is shifting into, I will probably do, you know, continue with public speaking and writing. Um, I'm developing courses, which have been, okay. I was like starting them. And then I, um, started working with a huge client that took a ton of time. So it kind of went on the back burner, but uh, writing courses, like teaching courses, um, okay. for service professionals, again, production and service. And, um, and then project-based. So I would say I, I really like the project-based consulting where there's one problem to fix or a program to launch, or, you know, it's, there's an end and start date sure. instead of this evolution of like, help our company be great forever, you know? Um, yeah. so I think it'll probably shift more into that. Well, with the coaching, do you ever envision yourself perhaps you know, dumping your knowledge about the consulting into somebody else and sort of either passing the baton yeah. or growing matters with other folks? I'm torn. I mean, yeah. I've thought about it. I've, I've tried. I think I'm, um, I'm an acquired taste. I'm very different and how eccentric in how I do it. So I haven't found anybody who's like, I feel like has the same philosophy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and I'm okay with that. You know, I'm, I've sort of accepted that matters is and was what I needed it to be at the time and that I've, I can do a lot of good with it, but that it's going to, it's going to always go through phases of evolution. And I just think the next phase is going to look more like teaching and support and staying behind the scenes, but doing it in a writing speaking way and the consulting behind the scenes, then out in front, you know, trying to sell and produce. Um, and I think the industry is changing really fast no, it is. and yeah, yeah. I have to, if I'm going to help clients, even if it's one or two and on a project basis, I have to know what's happening and, and stake, but be able to teach because they're busy selling and they're trying to yeah. move on to the next thing. So yeah, it's, it's been an interesting dichotomy because the love for writing and teaching and then the coaching, there's just only so many hours. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a lot. Yeah. I mean, all those are careers in yeah. of themselves. Uh, before we kind of shift yeah, to the end and we'll talk kind of big picture of healthcare and your closing yeah. thoughts and things like that. I'm curious when you go out in public speak, what are some, what are some of the subjects you speak about? What's your themes? Like who hires you? Are you doing industry conferences outside the industry? Yeah. What is stuff that you love to speak about? So I haven't, I haven't traveled a ton, um, especially lately because of my family and we're pretty busy. Um, but when I have done it, um, I, again, going back to kind of my philosophy roots. So I've done, a, I've done things where I take like stoic philosophy and apply them to our industry, um, take concepts that have nothing to do with our industry, like even songs and things that seem totally unrelated and just kind of help us shake up how we look at things. Um, so, you know, I've talked at captive conferences. I would say if I look back, most of my stuff has been captives, hmm. um, partly because I can speak to an audience of brokers, but I understand captives. Yeah. So, um, but even like not industry related, so st done stuff totally outside of the industry too. Um, 
I think it is the kind of bringing non-insurance into this world and finding applications for how we can make a difference using things. I think the, the clients that I bond the best with are the ones who don't accept what we've always done. The status quo. Yeah. yeah. Who, yeah. who don't say like, well, this is what we do here. You know, the ones who are like bucking that a little bit, mm-hmm. um, but just aren't sure how. Yeah, we consider that kind of a Pareto contrarian mindset, mm-hmm. right? Like we want to do business. We're contrarian. We want to yep. do business with other contrarians because it's if you accept that status quo is the best outcome, yeah. then we don't want to do business because that's not, we don't accept that status yeah. quo is the ideal way For to do sure. things. And so we want people that have a similar mindset. It yeah. sounds like you share that. Like, let's go big picture, right? I like yeah. buying the sky yeah, questions yeah. Um, and then we'll land the plane and, and finish with your closing thoughts. But like healthcare, such it's what 17, 18% of GDP. We always hear it's yeah. 4 trillion plus dollars. It's so massive. It's impossible for any one person to fix or even one company to fix. But if you had sort of your own view of what are some of the major things that you would do differently about our system to make it at least directionally better, what would that be? Mm. Did, I, did I hit you with a stumper? Yeah, I mean, that was end? a good yeah. one. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I opened MoFo with this idea that I'm just, I really am tired of people saying it's broken because it implies that like it was together at one point mm-hmm. and now we've broken it. I don't think it was ever together. I think the, if you look at the origin of health insurance and where it came about and what the intention was and then who we've let drive the bus, I think the fundamental problem is who's in control. And mm-hmm. I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about the driver's the entities that drive how it works, the big dogs, mm-hmm. um, who my lawyer would like me not to say mm-hmm. on a podcast, but the the big companies who make decisions and force volume, um, they're in charge. And none of us have enough volume or firepower up to this point to be able to fundamentally yeah. change that. So I think the best thing that we can do is start a, a widespread slow burning fire of doing what we know. And I mean, Pareto is a great example, but doing what we know we can do in the stop loss space, in the self-funding space, educating people. I think the problem comes in when, like I said, pseudo disruption, when we say we're different, we say that we're, you know, self-funding is like giving radical control, knowledge, ability to employers, but then we turn around and take the same approaches that the big ones take where Mm -hmm. we're, we're hiding money, we're, you know, padding things. We're not being completely open. We're fibbing about waiver. We're doing like little cutting corner things. Yeah. We become what we say we hate. Yeah. And so I think that's why we haven't seen radical change is because we talk about how we want radical change. But at the end of the day, systemically, we're starting, the more you cut those corners, the more you end up exactly where we say we hate. Yeah. It's, it's frustrating, you know, it's, but it's like you, can, you have to do something. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I, you know, that parable, right. About the, the starfish washed up on the shore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like the guy sees a kid throwing starfish back and is like, well, Hey, why are you doing that? It's a waste of time. It doesn't matter. And the mm-hmm. kid throws one back and says, well, it mattered. I made a difference to that one. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that's the uh, level of acceptance we have to have in this industry is that I can do the things that I can control. I can mm-hmm. work in organizations that in their lane, I believe are doing good work and we can have perhaps impact at a certain baseline level, maybe collectively we can reach critical mass to move the ship. But if I set out to go solve healthcare or fix the system myself, I I believe that's a losing battle. And it's going to leave you ultimately frustrated and Mm -hmm. feel like you fail. So 
I have decided I'm going to pick lanes instead, right? Yeah. And I'm going to have an impact in my lane. I think if there's enough Same. of us, like that smoldering ember that you described, yeah. that we're all doing good work in our lanes, collectively, perhaps we can Agreed. do good work. Um, but, oh, can I raise you a parable? You, you, please, yeah. So um, this, there's this, I, I literally just said this at a conference, but um, it's a story. I don't know wh where it was, but it was a contractor who was um, like known for his craftsmanship. And he was ready to retire, had like a 40-year career, and tells his boss he wants to retire the boss says okay I just have one more house I need you to finish and then I'll honor your retirement and so um but he was done he was checked out we've all been there with yeah, jobs totally. we're like checked out yeah. so he's checked out um he shows up does the job but he cuts corners he doesn't you know doesn't go the extra mile like he normally would and um they throw finally finishes the house throw him a big retirement party and then his gift is a key and the house was his mm -hmm. and I think some of us hear that like oh that's a touching story but if you think about it what we're doing actually affects us. Like we're building our own house. So my family is uninsured on purpose. Mm. Um, we pay cash for everything. Now I, we're in an ability to do it because I know how to negotiate for our family. Not everyone can do that, but I've learned a lot. Yeah. But when I think about the fact that what I do, even as a health insurance professional, is affecting, even if it's just a small little corner of the world, it is affecting the larger ecosystem. We're mm -hmm. all building our own house in that way. So every time we cut corners, every time we sneak, or every time we don't do exactly what we should be doing we are building this house um and i, I just think that again even yourself. with your yeah yeah with your starfish story it's a great example but it also does directly affect you you may not see it immediately mm -hmm. but it affects us it affects our children and our grandchildren and oh, what yeah. this is going to look like yeah and this is a generational problem as well right yeah. so like we're just continuing to kind of move the needle in the right direction yeah. and then hand the baton off to the next generation right and i hope we can attract good people young yeah. people into this industry to infuse Who life and new ideas yes. and a fire yes. and all that stuff so why don't we closing thoughts i mean the parable was probably a great closing <laughs> thought but i want to give you a chance just to sort of you know in your own words things that you want to leave the audience with the floor is yours Thanks. I mean, I think um, this is wonderful and, and things like this podcast where people are able to kind of speak their truth mm -hmm. is wonderful. I think, you know, if this industry could do one thing, it should be to collaborate more and to sort of scapegoat and blame less ah. and to kind of learn, learn and ask more questions. All of any amount of success I've had in this business, I can attribute to standing on the shoulders of giants who've helped me. So if we just ask more questions, be more inquisitive and curious, um, I think it will help all of us to kind of understand who's on the other side, whether that be a carrier, a TPA, a client. Um, I think if we start there, over time, this industry will start to look different. I love it. Well, I really appreciate you making Thank the trek you. from Texarkana. Thanks. Uh, Scotty, appreciate you, you joining, <laughs> and we'll get you guys back on the road. Uh, but this has been really fun. I know it's been yes, long it's been overdue. Uh, thank me. you for letting me participate in the anthology I'm as well. I'm so glad you're uh, in it. Yes. I really enjoyed it. So I appreciate you, and maybe we'll do this uh, a year or two Good down soon. the line. Yes. Thanks, man. Thanks so much.